0: The actor Bill Murray tells the story of a big failure early in his career. Uh, He was in Chicago and walked out of the performance so distraught that he decided to end his life in Lake Michigan. As he walked towards the lake, he happened to walk by the Chicago Art Institute and went inside. And he passed by the painting of a Peasant woman working in the field with the sun rising behind her, and he thought to himself, There is a woman without a whole lot of prospect for the future. But the sun is coming up, and she's got another chance. And I'm a person too, and will get a second chance every single day. Well, Jonah gets a second chance as well. We've been learning the story of the last few weeks of how God called him to preach in Nineveh, but he said no and boarded a ship for Tarshish and headed west. But God is a relentless pursuer and he sends a storm that threatens to sink the ship. And when the sailors find out that this has all been caused by his failure to obey God, they ask him what can be done to quiet the storm And he tells them to throw him overboard. This will be the first of three times in our short story when Jonah decides that he would rather die than to face a new day. Reluctantly, they throw him overboard. The storm stops instantly, and God sends a big fish to swallow Jonah. And in the belly of a whale he prays. I bet he does. I bet all of us would. And he kind of repents, kind of. But it's enough for God, and he commands the fish to vomit, to puke Jonah onto dry land. We find the story in chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a symbol of of repentance and remorse. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let people or animals, herds or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God, and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And so God gives Jonah a second chance. God said, go, and Jonah said, no. But three days in the belly of a great fish, and he changes from no way to okay, God never gives up on us. Aren't you glad? We may give up on ourselves, but God never gives up on us. Great story of, of this is found in Peter. Most of us are familiar with the story. It was the night of his betrayal of Jesus' betrayal, and he said to Peter, "Peter, tonight you're going to betray me three times before the cock crows. You're going to deny ever knowing me." And Peter says, "No way, Lord." I'm ready to die rather than to deny. But the going gets tough. The big squeeze has put on Peter. And like Jesus had warned, Peter denied ever knowing his Lord. The remorse, the pain, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment must have been excruciating. In fact, he is so ashamed that he goes into hiding. But that's not the end of the story. A couple days later, the resurrected Jesus finds Peter and some of his other disciple friends fishing in the Sea of Galilee, and he asks them a question, and he asks them three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. See, what's Jesus doing here? He's given Peter the opportunity to repent and to find forgiveness. He's given him a a second chance. He is bringing Peter back from failure by reminding him of his mission, of his his heading, of his purpose in life, and that is to feed, to shepherd the people of God. You see, it's all about grace. And it's grace is what keeps our, our past from determining our future. It helped Peter to let go of his past failure. It enables us to do the same. We can find release from our regrets. You see, all of us are here today. All of us have regrets. Guess why? None of us here are perfect. We all make mistakes, amen? We all stumble and fumble and we say foolish things and we make bad decisions and, and we waste time. We hurt ourselves and we hurt others. But God has provided a way so that you don't have to carry around with you every day of the rest of your life this this load of guilt and regret. I mean, I've talked to people, maybe you have too, and they've said, Pastor, I blew it. I made a mistake and and now I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. They have doomed themselves. They have imposed a life sentence without the hope of parole. But the truth is is that God is a God of the second chances. My friends, if Jesus gave Peter a second chance after denying him three times, I don't think it will be any problem for him to forgive you no matter what you have done. What new thing does God want to do in your life? God, you see, wants you to look ahead. You see, it's never too late to start over. Failure is never final unless you want it to be. But here's the cool thing. Not only does God give Jonah a second chance, He gives Nineveh a second chance. He, he walks into Nineveh, and He gives a, a very brief sermon. Very brief. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, that's it. That's His sermon. No powerful opening to grab everybody's attention. No humorous one-liners to make everybody laugh. No three-point uh, sermon. No, no mention uh, of why God was going to overthrow Nineveh. Heck, there's not even the mention of God in his sermon. I mean, just eight words in the English, five in the original Hebrew. I mean, if Jonah went to preaching class, he'd get an F minus, minus, minus. Wouldn't work, but it does. Verse 5 says, the Ninevites believed God. A fast is proclaimed. Everybody puts on sackcloth as a symbol of of repentance, from from the king all the way down to the lowest servant. Even their flocks and herds. I, I have no idea how they put sackcloth on cows, but something like that happened. And I think this is remarkable because you would have thought that walking into one of the most brutal empires on the face of the earth that he would have been arrested and and his head cut off. Wouldn't you think that? Or or, or at least they would have run him out of town. Or, Or at least they must have laughed at him as some kind of religious nut. But they don't. Now, historians have mentioned that the empire had gone through some of their own storms lately, that there had been famines and plagues and some revolts that had really rocked the empire. And ancient people saw these as, as omens of something worse to happen. But it had to be something more than that for Jonah's message to stick the way it did. And here's what I think it is, that repentance is the work of God. That God had already been at work before Jonah even arrived in Nineveh preparing for the day when Jonah would say yes and, and preach. And theologians have a word for this, and it's called prevenient grace. And it means simply that the grace that comes before. Before what? Before our salvation, before we are justified, before justifying grace. It is God's love coming to us before we are even conscious of it. That it is God's love. It is God intruding into our life, convincing us of our need, awakening us to God's presence and and gracious availability to us. It's convicting us of our sin and our need for God, telling us the truth about ourselves, and then lovingly leading us to repentance. Jesus himself stated that. When he said, No one comes to the Father, no one comes to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me. In other words, we don't save ourselves. We're not looking for God. God comes looking for us. God is a seeking God. And this grace, this provenient grace, begins the day that we're born. And what it means is that we're never on our own, it means that we're never alone. That God is constantly at work in our lives, that through our childhood and the teen years and through the pressure of work and raising children and and retirement and and loss and bereavement, God was there. That God was with you through your sorrows, through your loss, through your divorce, unemployment, heart attack, when you got the bad news in the doctor's office. And God was there with you in the joys of life, that that first love, the marriage, uh, birth of your children, that unexpected promotion uh, of finding your place, your purpose in this world. It also means that we're never left to our own devices when it comes to our relationship with God. God doesn't wait around for us to make the first move, but graciously makes the move towards us. It's a good thing, because otherwise there'd be no movement. The truth is, like Jonah, we are all running from God. And Why do we do that? Why are we running from the one person? Why are we running from the only person who can help us? It's because we're sinners. We're born that way. Theologians call it original sin. Now, we like to think that we're good people who just need a little self-improvement. The truth is that we're born with this bent towards sinning. St. Augustine, a brilliant bishop and scholar in North Africa in the 5th century, uh, said that if we only need some instructions, a little teaching to live a holy life, well, then we don't even need grace. We don't need God that we could do it all on our own. And so he took the view and said that there is no good in humankind whatsoever. He said the only freedom that we have is the freedom to do evil, that our will is totally corrupted. Calvinist theologians call this total depravity. And this, they say, is our natural condition, apart from God's grace, that it is only God's provenient grace that constrains us from doing more evil than what we do. And so Paul would write in Romans 3, verse 11, There is no one who is righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. So God's intent is to destroy the city. But when he sees the response to Jonah's message, God relented. Now this may blow you away, this may destroy your theology, but folks, it appears that God changes his mind. That God responds. That we're not in the hands of some uh, iron-clad, unfeeling fate. That God desires that we have life. That grace is God's first priority in his love relationship with us. Now, some people say that what happened in Nineveh was the biggest revival ever recorded in the Bible. But let's take a a closer look at exactly what did happen. In verse 8, it says, Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And verse 10 says, That's exactly what they did. Now, remember what we've discovered already about this empire, that it was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. That Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military campaigns by gloating over burning cities completely to the ground. That they would oftentimes take their prisoners and and cut off an arm and a leg just to mock them and to spite them. Today they would be labeled a terrorist state. So what do you think happens to a violent civilization like this? You see, you can't treat your enemy like that without tearing away the very fabric of your society and, and poisoning all human relationships. You cannot have a violent culture like this without it affecting every area of your culture. Cruelty and greed and, and exploitation have this natural consequence of leading to the disintegration of a culture. Jonas. Brief message causes them to repent of their moral and social wickedness and to forsake of their violence. In this we see humility and we see remorse. In fact, we even see a a reconciliation of the the different social classes. Verse 5 says that all of them, from the greatest down to the very least, repented and put on sackcloth. Now, what we don't see is, we don't see they became God followers. We don't see them forsaking their their idols, their gods. We don't see them being circumcised as a sign of a covenant relationship. We don't see them offering sacrifices to God. In other words, they don't become Jewish. But what happens to the empire is it becomes a more just society. And judgment is postponed. Postponed. In 1907, there was a great revival in Pyongyang, now the capital of North Korea, and it began when a preacher told them to repent of their hatred of Japan. You see, Koreans had good reasons to hate Japan. There had been many years of oppression and injustice inflicted by the Japanese government on Korea. But during this revival, they began to confess their hatred and much bitterness was drained away. It had a positive impact upon this nation. People began to restore relationships and neighbors began to return stolen articles and churches began to grow. In fact, the Methodist church in Korea doubled in membership in a single year after this revival. There was another revival called the Great Awakening. It was a series of revivals, actually, that began in in England and then spread to America in the mid-1700s. You see, the Industrial Revolution had brought huge cultural changes that in turn created a, a climate for political revolution and violence. But out of the midst of this great cultural change, there came a man named John Wesley and the beginning of the Methodist movement. And John Wesley, his friend George Whitefield, led a revival in England and and Jonathan Edwards led it in America and thousands of people came to faith through the preaching and, and churches began to fill. As a result, the moral climate in both Great Britain and America began to change and improve. People began to care for their families as drinking and domestic violence and and gambling began to decrease. It provided social mobility into the middle class. John Wesley had his own version of Dave Ramsey's financial peace class. He taught stewardship and, and how to use money wisely and how to save He even established a loan fund and a system for finding employment and and lending stock that enabled the poor to acquire the necessities to open their own small business. Remarkable. They started a school for the children of poor families. And in America, universities were started so that preachers could get an education. Schools with names like Princeton, Rutgers, Brown, and Dartmouth. These came out of a great revival. The Methodists went on to help start medical clinics and prison reform and the abolitionist movement. In fact, the most influential anti-slavery leader in Parliament was a man by the name of William Wilberforce who worked his entire life to abolish slavery in England. Did you know that Wilberforce was discipled by a, name, by the name, by a man by the name of... John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader who was converted to faith in Christ by a Methodist preacher. And Newton is most famous for writing the beloved hymn, Do You Know? Amazing Grace. Yeah. Even Benjamin Franklin admired the preaching of these men and and he saw the positive change that it brought to culture even though he himself had never professed faith in Christ. In fact, one uh, one, uh, historian, a French historian, uh, wrote that Methodism enabled 18th century England to avoid the bloody political revolution in France and that it was the Methodist revival that gave hope and discipline to Britain's newly urbanized and industrialized working class. Amazing. Amazing that God not only gives you and me a second chance, but He gives churches a second chance, and He gives cities a second chance, and He gives countries a second chance. God never gives up on us. In fact, God, I believe, is at work even now preparing you and me and this church and this city that we call home for the day when we'll begin working for a a just society. In fact, many of us believe that there is a global spiritual reawakening that is already beginning, and that this church, Anderson Hills, will be a part of it. We're already starting to see renewal here. In fact, one of the world's foremost speakers on spiritual renewal, Dr. Randy Clark, will be coming here to Anderson Hills to speak next year. I believe that we need to start getting ourselves ready. We need to align our hearts with God's heart. And we need to be sure that we say yes when God calls us to go. I want you to watch a a brief video of one of our members. And God gave him a second chance. I want you to hear how it's changed him.
1: You know, looking back at my life, I know that God's pursued me. My entire life, but I just wasn't aware of it. Starting out, you know, my father and I were on kind of different pages as far as what his way of giving love is and my way of receiving love. Um, because of those differences, I, you know, found myself needing, uh, or found what I felt was a hole in my heart, or needing something needing to fill the emptiness because I wasn't receiving the love that I needed. So not experiencing the love I needed from my father, it took me down a really dark path. It started off first with trying to overachieve in sports. Then it went to girls and women, alcohol, drugs, money, success. What I found was is, is the more I took in, almost the emptier I got. I realized that the worldly things could never fill the hole that I had in my heart. It got me to a point where um, it was time for me to make a decision. I was in a very, very dark place, and, and that morning that I woke up, there were, I had two choices. One was to change my life, and two was to commit suicide. Sad to say, I contemplated suicide for a long time. But God gave me a second chance. In that moment, he put a picture of Madeline in my brain. And I knew that I could never destroy her because of my brokenness and my darkness. And that allowed me to, to change. I met a pastor and, and he accepted me and he loved me through the darkest moments. And because of that, um, that opened my mind to, to make change. That led to Emmaus and me experiencing God's love for the first time, a true love, um, something that I could never explain or or, or to um, fathom. I truly felt the love of God, and in that moment, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It was a feeling that I could never explain, probably still can't to this day, but it's overwhelmed me and allowed me to move forward. In that second chance that God has given me, um, I have experienced a freedom, a love, an excitement, um, a joy that I just want to share with the world. And I want to use that to spread His joy and love. I want to love others the way that I am being loved by Him.
0: Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you you never give up on us. No matter how far we run, you never give up. God, too many times we have said a no to you, but today we wish to say yes. Thank you that you forgive us when we do, that you always take us back. And so we repent of going our own way. God, hear our prayer of repentance for ignoring our community. For we know that when revival comes, that it has to change and change lives and a change community or it's not real revival. Show us, God, how we can be a blessing to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.